A federal grand jury indicts a ham sandwich part two, legal precedents and whataboutism by Derek Seagull. People say, look, if you break the law, you should go to jail. You should be prosecuted, and the fact that other people break the law and aren't prosecuted makes no difference. That is not how the law works in every other instance. You can argue that whataboutism doesn't matter. So you say, oh, Russia committed a war crime because they used this certain weapon here, AG, cluster bombs. And then someone comes along and says, well, the United States uses those weapons and Ukraine uses those weapons and the UK uses the weapon and Israel uses those weapons. And then the response is, oh, that's whataboutism. Who cares if other people do it, too? If Russia does it, it's wrong. That's the kind of argument being marshaled. Who cares if everybody in Washington constantly leaks classified information? The fact that President Trump did it means he should be prosecuted. But that is not how the law works. The law is an extremely potent weapon. It can put you in a cage. It can deprive you of your liberty. It can seize your assets. It can even in some cases take your life. And so, in order for the law to be accepted in a society that the government has the power through force to come and take you and put you in a cage, it needs to have credibility. It needs to be something other than just a brute weapon that's used against political enemies. And the only way to ensure that the law has credibility is if it's applied consistently and universally and not selectively. That's why with law, legal precedence is everything. How the law has been applied in other similar cases always guides how we view the law in this case and the fact that, as I'm about to show you, so many people who were on the side of the establishment, who were judged politically favorably by the establishment, who did exactly what President Trump is, accused to have done but far worse, the fact that they were given slaps on the wrist or never even prosecuted. Of course, that's enormous light on the motives at play here and therefore on the validity of the prosecution. Now, the final point I want to make before going into these historical examples is one of the laws that has been invoked as the basis for these charges against President Trump is the Espionage Act of 1917. Coincidentally, on the other side of the Atlantic, Julian Assange's extradition to stand trial in the United States remains imminent over the very same law that gives the government obscene amounts of power. The Espionage Act was a law first implemented by Woodrow Wilson designed to do nothing other than criminalize Americans' dissent to the idea that the U.S. should enter World War I and fight in it as combatants. Indeed, many people were prosecuted under the Espionage Act for doing nothing other than opposing President Wilson's war policies in that European war effort. To overturn that law on the grounds that it is blatantly unconstitutional, have produced some of the most notorious and shameful rulings in Supreme Court history, and yet the Court has protected this law, and it is one of the most extreme and repressive laws in the U.S. Code, which basically was allowed to remain dormant for all of the 20th century. Among those charged with offenses under the Act in the 20th century are Austrian-American congressman and newspaper editor Victor Elberger, labor leader and five-time Socialist Party of America candidate Eugene V. Debs, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, former Watchtower Bible, Attract Society President Joseph Franklin Rutherford, Rutherford's conviction was overturned on appeal, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. Although the most controversial sections of the Act, a set of amendments commonly called the Sedition Act of 1918, were repealed on December 13, 1920, the original Espionage Act was left intact. Between 1921 and 1923, Presidents Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge released all those convicted under the Sedition and Espionage Acts. The most high-profile case was when the Nixon administration used the Espionage Act to prosecute Daniel Ellsberg for the crime of leaking the Pentagon Papers, 
a volume of top-secret documents that revealed that the U.S. government was systematically lying to the American people about the Vietnam War. In other words, the U.S. government spent years insisting publicly that it was just a few months away from winning the war and vanquishing the North Vietnamese. All it needed was some more money, some more conscripts, some more authority, some more conscripts, some more authority, some more bombs, some more weapons, and yet privately as the Pentagon Papers revealed the U.S. government and its top officials inside the Pentagon in war-making agencies in the U.S. security state, acknowledged from the start of the war that victory would be impossible, that the greatest and best-case scenario was a stalemate. Ellsberg was somebody who started at the Rand Corporation, had been an advocate of the Vietnam War, helped plan the Vietnam War from his position in the Rand Corporation, and because of his position, he had access to the most sensitive secrets that the U.S. government possessed. Along the way, in the mid-sixties, he realized that the U.S. government was prosecuting this war based on a lie, and that it was ending the lives of thousands of Americans who did not volunteer to go to Vietnam, but instead were conscripted. It was also ending the lives of hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese civilians. As an act of conscience, he came forward and said that he can no longer stand by while he had the evidence in hand that the U.S. government is lying to the American people and continued to conceal it, even though it's likely that he would go to prison for life if he were to reveal it. He first tried to get senators to read the Pentagon Papers into the record because senators under the Constitution have full immunity from prosecution for anything they do or say on the Senate floor, and not a single senator was courageous enough to do it. Ellsberg finally went to the New York Times and provided these documents. The New York Times reported on it, and then the Nixon administration dug up this archaic statute from the Wilson era and tried to use it to say that Ellsberg was guilty of espionage, even though Ellsberg's most harshest critics acknowledged that he was not acting on behalf of a foreign government. They tried for a while to claim he was a Kremlin agent, but nobody believed that he went to journalists and leaked this information in order to inform the American people what the truth was. The Nixon administration ultimately was unsuccessful in its efforts to prosecute him because they had gotten caught engaged in all sorts of serious misconduct, including ordering a break into the psychiatrist office of Daniel Ellsberg in order to find incriminating psychosexual secrets that would discredit him, and that misconduct resulted in the dismissal of his lawsuit of the criminal case against him. If that had not happened, he almost certainly would have spent the rest of his life in prison. Ellsberg just died this week at the age of 92. He was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer, but that was one of the things that he did in history. That was, he reminded the U.S. government about the existence of this very repressive law. Ellsberg's plan all along was that he wanted to come forward and identify himself as the leaker of the Pentagon paper. He didn't want to hide behind anonymity. He decided he owed it to the American people to come forward and identify himself and explain why he leaked these documents. The reason it became such a valuable tool in the hands of the U.S. government is because they were marked top secret, hidden from the purview of the American public about what their elected and unelected officials were spending their tax dollars on. Ellsberg's plan was to go to trial and convince the jury of his peers that even though the law prohibited him from doing what he had done, his actions were morally justified. He was obligated to do it ethically because the evil of forcing him to remain silent while watching the government lie to the population about something so significant outweighed the imperatives of the law. What ended up happening was, he went up to the stand. He began to explain to the jury that he did leak the documents, but was justified in doing so, and the judge immediately shut him down and ruled that the Espionage Act, unlike most laws, is a strict liability statute, meaning it doesn't matter what motive you had when you violated.
If you are authorized to receive classified information and then you publish classified information or disclose it to someone who is unauthorized to receive it, you are automatically guilty of felonies under the Espionage Act of 1917, and there is no defense available to you. When the judge ruled that, it showed the U.S. government, the CIA, the FBI, the FBI, the Homeland Security didn't exist then. That was created in 2002. The yes, S of the USC, the rest of the U.S. security state agencies, have this incredibly powerful weapon in their hands. It means that they can take any document that exists, including ones revealing and proving that they've committed grave crimes or that they've lied to the American people, and all they have to do is mark that document classified, or secret, or top secret, and it becomes a felony with years, if not decades in prison as the punishment for anyone to take that document and reveal it to the world, even if they've abused their powers by marking it secret with the intention of concealing their own crimes and their own deceit. That was the effect of that ruling and what the Espionage Act of 1917 meant thereafter. In the 1990s, during the Clinton years, the National Security Advisor to President Clinton, Sandy Berger, went to a room where very sensitive materials were kept, and he stole them. He stuffed them in his pants with the malicious intent to remove them and prevent investigators from discovering them. Here, from NBC News in 2006, agency says ex-Clinton aide took classified documents. President Clinton's National Security Advisor removed classified documents from the National Archives, hid them under a construction trailer and later tried to find the trash collector to retrieve them, the agency's internal watchdog said Wednesday. The report was issued more than a year after Sandy Berger pleaded guilty and received a criminal sentence for removing the documents. Berger took the documents in the fall of 2003 by working to prepare himself and Clinton administration witnesses for testimony to the September 11th Commission. Berger was authorized as the Clinton administration's representative to make sure the commission got the correct classified materials. He pleaded guilty to unlawfully removing and retaining classified information. He was fined $50,000 ordered to perform a hundred hours of community service and was barred from access to classified material for three years. Inspector General Paul Brackfeld reported that National Archives employees spotted Berger bending down and fiddling something white around his ankle. The employees did not feel at the time there was enough information to confront someone of Berger's stature, the report said. Later, when Berger was confronted by archive officials about the missing documents, he lied by saying he did not take them, the report said. Brackfeld's report included an investigator's note taken during an interview at Berger. The notes dramatically described Berger's removal of documents from an October 2, 2003 visit to the archives. Berger took a break to go outside with an escort while it was dark. He had taken four documents in his pockets. He headed toward a construction area. Mr. Berger looked up and down the street, up into the windows of the archives and dojo, and did not see anyone, said notes prepared by the Inspector General's office. He then slid the documents under a construction trailer, according to the Inspector General. Berger acknowledged that he later retrieved the documents from the construction area and returned them to his office. He was aware of the risk he was taking. The Inspector General's note said, Berger then returned to the archive building without fearing the documents would slip out of his pockets, or the staff would notice that his pockets were bulging. The note said Berger had not been aware that archive staff had been tracking the documents he was provided because of earlier suspicions from previous visits that he was removing materials. Also, the employees had made copies of some documents. In October 2003, the report said, an archives official called Berger to discuss missing documents from his visit two days earlier. The investigator's note said, Mr. Berger panicked because he realized he was caught. The note said that Berger had destroyed cuttings of small pieces 
three or four of the documents. These were put into the trash. After the trash had been picked up, Berger tried to find the trash collector but had no luck, the note said. Now, this is another person who never went to prison. He was not convicted of a felony. He got a fine and yet he was deliberately stealing documents to prevent them from being discovered as part of the 9-11 Commission, looking into how 9-11 happened. Remember 9-11 happened nine months after the end of the Clinton administration, and here you had the National Security Advisor for Bill Clinton repeatedly stuffing into his pants, stealing extremely sensitive documents from the National Archive to prevent investigators from discovering it. We never really learned what those documents would have revealed or what his motive was, but obviously his motive was malicious. He didn't go and get convicted of any felony. He never spent the day in jail. He was a good friend of the Clintons. He got off basically scot-free. In March 2012, Judge Amy Berman Jackson rejected a suit brought by watchdog group Judicial Watch that demanded Bill Clinton's tapes originally kept in a sock drawer be given to the National Archives and Records Administration so the American people could hear them. The tapes were used for his autobiography and that were also mined by writer Taylor Branch in Branch's book, Wrestling History, the Bill Clinton tapes, about Clinton. Under the statutory scheme established by the Prata Presidential Records Act, the decision to segregate personal materials from presidential records is made by the president during the president's term and in his sole discretion, Jackson wrote. Since the president is completely entrusted with the management and even the disposal of presidential records during his time in office, it would be difficult for this court to conclude that Congress intended that he would have less authority to do what he pleases with what he considers to be his personal records, the judge wrote. The ruling also indicated seizing such records was not appropriate. Because the audio tapes are not physically in the government's possession, the defendant submits that it would be required to seize them directly from President Clinton in order to assume custody and control over them, Jackson noted. Defendant considers this to be an extraordinary request that is unfounded, contrary to the Praz express terms, and contrary to traditional principles of administrative law. The court agrees. The government, the lawyer for the archives, said, You know what? If documents are in the form of President's hands where they're presumptively personal, we just, you know, we presume they're personal, President of Judicial Watch Tom Fitton said. We respectfully disagree with the court, he said then. The idea that a president could spirit official recordings and documents out of the White House, and that there is nothing that can be legally done about it is a misreading of the Presidential Records Act. It is ironic that a law passed in response to the Nixon tapes controversy would allow Bill Clinton to keep tapes of his official actions secret and unavailable to the American people. Kagan Brock, former assistant FBI director for intelligence, said the search warrant used by the FBI was faulty and overbroad. Specificity is important in order to protect Fourth Amendment rights from exuberant government overment overreach designed to find whatever they can, he said. The warrant apparently makes a novel legal assertion that any presidential record kept by a former president is against the law, Brock said. You have to wonder what the other living former presidents think about that. They have the right and apparently clear desire to remain silent. The Espionage Act was not used after Ellsberg by any president through the Ford administration. The Reagan administration, fighting the Cold War, fighting the Cold War, fighting the wars in Central America, nor was it used during the Clinton years or even by George Bush and Dick Cheney under the War on Terror. That statute was picked up and was aggressively weaponized under the Obama administration to punish and criminalize anybody who leaked information, even whistleblowers who were exposing government crimes. In fact, the Obama Justice Department under Eric Holder prosecuted more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act of 1917 
than all previous presidents combined. We went from Woodrow Wilson to George W. Bush, and there were a grand total of two prosecutions under the Espionage Act, one of which was Daniel Ellsberg. Remember Barack Obama ran on promises of restoring transparency to government, of uprooting the excesses of secrecy abuses and civil liberties abuses and civil liberties, abuses carried out by the Bush administration's war on terror? Instead, he did the opposite in so many instances. There was a consensus in Washington and in the media that he did the right thing when he not only immunized the entire CIA and all Bush officials for war crimes, including torture, but also when he strengthened and expanded those abuses of George Bush, including by re-weaponizing the Espionage Act and using it to prosecute more whistleblowers than all previous presidents combined, that was the statute under which Edward Snowden was prosecuted and still is being charged. I remember so well when Edward Snowden sought asylum in Russia after the Obama administration purposely trapped him there when he was transiting through on his way to Latin America to get asylum. John Kerry and other Obama officials, including Hillary Clinton, would constantly go to the media and say, Oh, if Edward Snowden really believes in what he's saying that he was justified in doing what he did, he should man up. Mm. That was the words of John Kerry and go back to the United States and argue to a jury of his peers that he was in fact justified to do what he did, and they were deliberately deceiving the public because they very well knew that under the Espionage Act of 1917 there is no such defense available. You cannot go before a jury of your peers and argue that what you did was justified the way you can with so many other crimes, where you can argue you didn't have the requisite ill intent or malicious intent necessary to be turned into a criminal, the Espionage Act is a strict liability law according to the ruling in that Daniel Ellsberg trial and so people charged under this law are essentially consigned inevitably to being found guilty as long as it can be proven that they publish classified information without authorization. Now the other thing that makes this law so dangerous is that it can actually be used against not just whistleblowers or sources, meaning people who worked inside the U.S. government and took an oath to maintain secrecy the way Daniel Ellsberg did, the way Edward Snowden did, the way Edward Snowden did, the way Chelsea Manning did, the way all the other people charged by the Obama Justice Department did. It can also be used to prosecute people who've never worked for the U.S. government in their lives, and therefore we're under no obligation to maintain the secrecy of these documents. In other words, it can be used to prosecute journalists, journalists who receive information that is classified from a source, and then go on to publish it. If you read the language of the Espionage Act, it doesn't confine itself just to sources. It essentially says anyone is guilty of a felony if they publish classified information, and not only people who have an oath to keep it secret. In the language of the Espionage Act, you can actually criminalize journalists. The question has always been if you were to try and use the Espionage Act against journalists and prosecute journalists, even though they're under no obligation to maintain classified documents, a secret would run afoul of the First Amendment guarantee of a free press and the U.S. government has never wanted to test that because they like having this weapon to hang over the heads of journalists. During the Snowden reporting, they constantly threatened the journalists responsible for the bombshell, reporting both publicly and privately with prosecution because they were hoping that it would scare them, that they would think in any kind of difficult case. Well, maybe it's no longer worth publishing because the government always has the option to try and prosecute under the Espionage Act, or maybe look, we won all the awards, we've gotten all these plaudits, maybe it's time to stop, maybe, we should just not report all the stories in the archive that the public has the right to know, out of fear that the Justice Department might prosecute them. 
The government likes having this weapon to hang over your head and they use it aggressively and they don't want to risk losing it by having a court ruling, where they prosecuted journalists under it, and a journalist successfully raises a free press defense. Now we get to the case of Julian Assange, the Australian editor of WikiLeaks, who in 2006 published a five-page essay that outlined the thought experiment behind WikiLeaks. The more secretive or unjust an organization is, the more leaks induce fear and paranoia in the leadership and planning coterie. This must result in minimization of efficient internal communications, mechanisms and increase in cognitive secrecy tax, and consequent system-wide cognitive decline resulting in decreased ability to hold on to power as the environment demands adaptation. Hence, in a world where leaking is easy, secretive or unjust systems are non-linearly hit relative to open, just systems. Since unjust systems, by their nature, induce opponents, and in many places barely have the upper hand, leaking leaves them exquisitely vulnerable to those who seek to replace them with more open forms of governance. In March 2010, a member of WikiLeaks using the Handlelocks, widely believed to be Julian Assange, talked to Chelsea Manning by text chat while she was submitting leaks to WikiLeaks. In the chat logs, Manning asks Assange if he was any good at lem hash cracking, which would decrypt passwords. Assange said he was, and told Manning about rainbow tables that WikiLeaks used to crack hashes and find passwords associated with them. The exchange would ultimately be cited as evidence against Assange for the 2018 charge of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. From April to October of 2010, WikiLeaks published troves of documents, files, video footage, reports, and logs from U.S. war crimes in Iraq. Collateral murder shows U.S. soldiers fatally shooting 18 civilians from a helicopter in Iraq, including Reuters journalists Namir Noor, Eldeen, and his assistant Saeed Shmash. Iraq war logs is a collection of 391,832 United States Army field reports from the Iraq war covering from 2004 to 2009, and Afghanistan-Afghan war logs, the publications also released Cablegate files, a quarter of a million U.S. diplomatic cables, which show United States espionage against the United Nations and other world leaders, reveal tensions between the U.S. and its allies, and exposed corruption in countries throughout the world, as documented by U.S. diplomats, helping to spark the Arab Spring, Cablegate along with the Iraq and Afghan. War logs impacted diplomacy and public opinion globally, with responses varying by region. During her court-martial, Manning said she downloaded the detainee assessment briefs, DABs, for Guantanamo Bay after speaking to a member of WikiLeaks via a secure online chat log. While discussing files on Guantanamo Bay, Manning asked Assange about detainee assessment briefs. She said that although he did not believe that they were of political significance, he did believe that they could be used to merge into the general historical account of what occurred at Guantanamo. She added that after this discussion, I decided to download the data. The Obama administration desperately wanted to prosecute Julian Assange for the Espionage Act, even though Assange was and is a non-U.S. person who lived outside the U.S. After WikiLeaks released the Manning material, United States authorities began investigating WikiLeaks and Assange to prosecute them under the Espionage Act. They convened a grand jury. They spent years investigating Assange and they knew from the start that they couldn't charge Assange with crimes simply for publishing these documents because Assange worked in partnership with some of the leading media outlets in the world that published these same documents including the New York Times, The Guardian and El Pais and all sorts of other media outlets around the world 
So the question always was, how can you criminalize Julian Assange and his publication of these top-secret documents, but not criminalize and prosecute the New York Times, The Guardian or the other? Newspapers that publish same material? Most cases brought under the Espionage Act have been against government employees or contractors who accessed sensitive information and leaked it to journalists and others. Prosecuting people for acts related to receiving and publishing information has not previously been tested in court. Gabe Rotman from the Reporters' Committee for Freedom of the Press said there were a few occasions when the U.S. government had almost charged a journalist under the Espionage Act, but had decided not to proceed. He mentioned the case of Seymour Hirsch, whom the Justice Department decided after consideration not to charge for reporting on us surveillance of the Soviet Union. BuzzFeed News wrote that lawyers to whom it had spoken said there was only one previous case in which third parties were prosecuted for sharing leaked information. In that case, two lobbyists for a pro-Israel group were charged in 2005 with receiving and sharing classified information about American policy toward Iran. The charges, however, did not relate to the publication of the documents and the case was dropped in 2009. The challenge for the Obama Justice Department was to find something that Assange did that went beyond merely receiving these documents from Chelsea Manning and then publishing them to say that he somehow became part of the criminal acts themselves beyond just publication. The Obama administration searched and searched and searched for years. Using grand juries, they subpoenaed people. They subpoenaed documents and witnesses. They could find nothing and so the Obama administration concluded, as a result that even though it wanted to, it could not and would not prosecute Julian Assange. The Obama administration never indicted Julian under the Espionage Act because they could not find anything he did that went beyond mere publishing. The intelligence officer said she felt betrayed by Petraeus after news of their affair broke in 2012, Broadwell and Petraeus pictured together in this file photo. Let's not forget the leak by former President Obama's former CA director David Petraeus of what were called the crown jewels of the U.S. security state, the most sensitive documents that the government has in its possession, and he gave them to his mistress, the woman with whom he was having an extramarital affair because she was writing a book on him, and he wanted her to be able to write a book that was extremely adoring and gave her those documents for that reason. Here we see from the Los Angeles Times when he pled guilty, David H. Petraeus, the former CA director and retired four-star army general admitted Tuesday that he gave eight handwritten journals containing highly classified information about secret operations and identities of covert officers to his mistress in 2011 and lied about it to the FBI, pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor count of our training of retaining classified information. Prosecutors agreed not to charge him with more serious crimes such as obstruction of justice and lying to the FBI, the Justice Department announced. Petraeus agreed to pay a $40,000 fine and prosecutors said they would recommend that he received probation instead of prison time. Petraeus ran the CIA for only 14 months before he was forced to step down after admitting to an illicit affair with his biographer Paula Broadwell. The FBI hadn't covered the affair while investigating allegedly threatening emails that Broadwell had sent to a Florida socialite who was friends with Petraeus and his wife two weeks before the scandal broke. Petraeus was interviewed by two FBI agents who said they were investigating allegations of security breaches in that meeting, according to court documents released Tuesday. Petraeus told the agents he had never given classified information to Broadwell. But according to court papers, Petraeus had given her a 5x8-inch bound notebooks that contained notes from official and unofficial meetings and briefings and briefings while he was in Afghanistan. The journals contained classified information regarding the identity of covert intelligence officers 
with strategy intelligence capability diplomatic discussions quotes from and delivered discussions with high-level National Security Council meetings and Petros's private meetings with President Obama, according to court documents. Petraeus did not give the books to his official military historian as required, but kept them in his home. On August 4, 2011, a month before he was to take over the CIA, Broadwell asked, By the way, where are your black books? According to a recording she made interviewing him, the court paper said, Petraeus told her they were in a rucksack somewhere, but that the contents were highly classified. So, there you have a case where the documents in this one instance were really the kind of documents they always warn about, containing the names of covert officers overseas and secret covert operations that were being undertaken, and he gave it to her she had no ability to keep them secure, and the idea was to let her write a book, and then he lied about it to the FBI. Petraeus didn't send a day in prison. They ended up charging him with misdemeanor counts. One misdemeanor count. He ended up getting a job at Harvard. He became the global chairman of the KR, the global investment bank. He made tens of millions of dollars and he is still treated now as one of the wise old men of Washington. Even though his leak was infinitely more severe than almost any other leak, certainly by Edward Snowden, by Chelsea Manning, by almost anyone who has been sent to prison for years the way they want to do to President Trump. This is the selectivity, the political game-playing that they do with this law that makes its entire existence and application inherently suspect. Now perhaps the most analogous case is Hillary Clinton, because unlike Sandy Berger, there's no allegation that Donald Trump maliciously stole these documents of any ill motive. He didn't expose the names of covert agents. At most, it was a bureaucratic oversight. That was the claim ultimately made about Hillary Clinton when she set up a private email server at her home in which she received classified information. Even though it was unprotected, the claim from James Comey was even though what she did was wrong and careless and reckless. She didn't have the requisite criminal intent necessary to prosecute her, and so they didn't. Now you may recall that Hillary Clinton lied repeatedly about what happened here. In fact, PolitiFact rated her statement false. From July 2016, you know PolitiFact would not be calling her a liar just a few months before the election unless there was extremely compelling reason to do so. When she had denied that she never received or sent any material that was marked classified on her private email server while Secretary of State, that was an absolute lie. There was classified material found passing through that private server, and therefore political politifact rates that, as a lie, so she absolutely lied. But in July of 2016, FBI Director Jim Comey, who, let us remember, was just accused of opening a criminal investigation into Trump's collusion with Russia without evidentiary basis. This accusation comes from a very well-regarded prosecutor John Durham in a 302-page report that he filed after a year's long investigation. Comey did it because, as he now admits, and as we now admits, and as we now admits, and as we now know, he hates President Trump and wanted him to lose that election. One can certainly and reasonably presume that was a similar motive for why he chose not to prosecute Hillary Clinton, even though she also had classified material at her home that was very carelessly kept on an unprotected private email server that she had. Here from the New York Times, you see the headline FBI Director James Comey recommends no charges for Hillary Clinton on email. The FBI Director James B. Comey on Thursday recommended no criminal charges against Hillary Clinton for handling classified information while she was Secretary of State, lifting an enormous legal clout from a presidential campaign less than two hours before she boarded Air Force One for her first joint campaign appearance with President Obama. On a day of high political drama in Washington, Mr. Comey rebuked Mrs. Clinton as being extremely careless in using a private email server.
as using a private email server as using a private email address and server. What a gift! What a stroke of luck! He raised questions about her judgment, contradicted statements she had made about her email practices, said it was possible that hostile foreign governments had gained access to her account, and declared that a person is still employed by the government. Mrs. Clinton left the State Department I. 2013. Could have faced disciplinary action for doing what she did. To warrant a criminal charge, Mr. Comey said there had to be evidence that Mrs. Clinton intentionally transmitted or willfully mishandled classified information. The FBI found neither, and as a result, he said, our judgment is that no reasonable prosecutor could bring such a case. Earlier this week, Hillary mocked the Trump indictment. She promoted a hat that said, but her emails, which is a phrase used by liberal pundits to blame the media for Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016, saying that they excessively focused on this investigation and that it was no big deal that she mishandled classified information, precisely because everybody knows that mishandling classify. Information is a joke. It's what people do in Washington every day. Not only did liberal pundits think she shouldn't be prosecuted for it, they were enraged that some media outlets, including New York Times, even reported on it, made it appear like it was a big deal, to the point where but her emails became an inside joke among liberal journalists. Excuse the redundancy because that was their way of saying, oh, Trump is this evil fascist and white supremacist, but her emails? In other words, the media was too even, handed in their coverage of the election by not only focusing on Trump's alleged wrongdoing with Russia, which turned out to be baseless, but on Hillary Clinton's missing classified documents as well, because everyone views in this handling of classified documents in Washington by powerful people as a joke. The only people who go to prison for that are low-level people who act with noble motives like Edward Snowden or Julian Assange or Chelsea Manning. Powerful people all the time get slaps on the wrist like David Petraeus and Sandy Berger and Hillary Clinton. Trump supporters now realize Pompeo was completely deceitful in presenting himself as some sort of populist or some sort of adherent to MAGA ideology. He was a pure neocon from the start. If you look at his voting record when he was in the House of Representatives, he supported every single U.S. war, including the Obama administration's covert war to overthrow Bashar al-Assad in Syria, a war that even Ron DeSantis, when he was a member of the House, opposed even though he had a vouse, opposed even though he had a pretty standard pro-war record as the Republican House member. Mike Pompeo stood up as cheer director in 2017 and gave one of the creepiest and most menacing speeches I've ever heard from a top official, in which he vowed he would do everything in his power tirelessly to work to destroy WikiLeaks. During the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign, Julian Assange was critical of both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. In February 2016, Assange wrote, Hillary lacks judgment and will push the United States into endless stupid wars which spread terrorism. She certainly should not become president of the United States. In an Election Day statement, Assange said that the Democratic and Republican candidates have both expressed hostility towards whistleblowers. In a 2017 interview by Amy Goodman, Julian Assange said that choosing between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is like choosing between cholera or gonorrhea. Personally, I would prefer neither. On 22 July 2016, WikiLeaks released emails and documents from the Democratic National Committee, DNC, in which the DNC seemingly presented ways of undercutting Clinton's competitor, Bernie Sanders, and showed apparent favoritism towards Clinton. The release led to the resignation of DNC chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz and an apology to Sanders from the DNC. The New York Times wrote that Assange had timed the release to coincide with the 2016 Democratic National Convention because he believed Clinton had pushed for his indictment 
and he regarded her as a liberal warhawk. On October 7, WikiLeaks began publishing emails from Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. On October 15, the Ecuadorian government severed Assange's internet connection from 15 October until December because of alleged election interference. In standard useful idiot prose, the Senate Intelligence Committee claimed WikiLeaks actively sought and played a key role in the Russian intelligence campaign and very likely knew it was assisting a Russian intelligence influence effort. In November 2017, WikiLeaks asked Donald Trump Jr. to share a WikiLeaks tweet with the quote, Can't we just drone this guy? which the website True Pundit claimed that Hillary Clinton had made about Assange. Aaron Mate proves in Russiagate proba Durham neglected DNC hack claim, despite evidence it too was a Democrat sham. Special counsel John Durham's final report faults the FBI for opening the Trump-Russia collusion investigation on baseless grounds and relying on Hillary Clinton funded material to pursue it, all while ignoring a warning that Clinton was plotting to frame Trump as a Russian asset. Yet Durham does not address the Clinton campaign's equally central tie to Russiagate's other foundational allegation, that Russia interfered in the 2016 election by hacking Democratic Party servers and releasing the material through WikiLeaks to help elect Trump. The FBI, the Durham report notes, relied on a significant quantity of materials I, that originated within Theor were funded by the Clinton campaign or affiliated persons. Accordingly, Durham concluded, the FBI should have considered whether the Clinton camp was feeding it false claims as part of a political effort to smear a political effort to smear a political opponent and exploit the federal government's law enforcement and intelligence agencies in support of that goal. For unexplained reasons, Durham did not apply this critique to the FBI's reliance on Clinton-funded sources to probe the theft of Democratic Party emails. As a result, seven years to the month after CrowdStrike triggered the Russiagate sackard, the U.S., Public remains in the dark about whether the Russian hacking allegation was yet one more deception funded by the Clinton campaign and parroted by the FBI. In interviews, Assange repeatedly said that the Russian government was not the source of the DNC and Podesta emails and accused the Clinton campaign of a kind of neo-McCarthy hysteria about Russian involvement. On the eve of the election, Assange addressed the criticism he'd received for publishing Clinton material saying that WikiLeaks publishes material given to us if it is of political, diplomatic, historical or ethical importance and which has not been published elsewhere, that it had never received any original information on Trump, Jill Stein or Gary Johnson's campaign. In a July 2016 interview on Dutch television, Assange hinted that DNC staffer Seth Rich was the source of the DNC emails and that Rich had been killed as a result, seeking clarification the interviewer asked Assange whether Rich's killing was simply a murder, to which Assange answered, No, there's no finding, so I'm suggesting that our sources take risks, and they become concerned to see things occurring like that. WikiLeaks offered a $20,000 reward for information about his murder and wrote, We treat threats toward any suspected source of WikiLeaks with extreme gravity. This should not be taken to imply that Seth Rich was a source to WikiLeaks or to imply that his murder is connected to our publications. During the Trump administration, CIA Director Mike Pompeo and Attorney General Jeff Sessions stepped up pursuit of Assange. Pompeo worked tirelessly to get the Trump Justice Department to indict Julian Assange, and they did. They had considered offering Assange some form of immunity from prosecution in exchange for his testimony and had reached out to Assange's lawyers. The negotiations were ended by the Vault 7 disclosures, a series of documents that WikiLeaks began to publish in March 2017, 
detailing the activity and capabilities and capabilities and capabilities of the United States Central Intelligence Agency, CA, to perform electronic surveillance and cyber warfare. Ultimately, in 2019, they charged him with crimes under the Espionage Act of 1917. Assange was ripped out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London in 2019, where he lived in political asylum since 2012. He currently resides in a British prison pending his imminent extradition to the U.S. Let us remember that Joe Biden has a very similar case where he was found to have kept classified documents in all kinds of places where the law prohibits him from keeping these documents. Here from Business Insider in January of 2023, Biden suggests the classified documents found in his garage were safe because it was locked with his Corvette. President Joe Biden confirmed Thursday that a second batch of classified documents was found in his garage, but suggested they were safe because the garage, which stored his Corvette, was locked. At a White House press conference, Biden downplayed security concerns about the materials found at his house in Delaware. When a Fox News reporter asked what Biden was thinking by keeping documents in his garage next to his Corvette, Biden pushed back, by the way, my Corvette is in a locked garage, OK? So it's not like they're sitting out on the street, he said. So the material was in a locked garage, asked Fox News reporter Peter Ducey. Biden responded, yes, as well as my Corvette. As Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to probe the matter. The White House said it would cooperate with the investigation. The latest cache of classified documents being unearthed comes after a first batch of classified documents were discovered last fall at Biden's former private office at the Penn Biden Center in Washington. Can reported the documents covered topics that included Ukraine, Iran, and the UK. It is currently unclear how many documents are in the batch and what they were about. That was his defense. Oh, I keep my Corvette where I kept the classified documents. Obviously, I wouldn't keep my Corvette in an unsafe place. Do you think my Lego is locked? The distinction people make is that Biden returned the document as soon as he was made aware that he had them, whereas Trump resisted returning them for several months, even when the archives and the Justice Department was asking for them back. But nobody thinks at this point that Joe Biden is going to be prosecuted just like Hillary Clinton wasn't for keeping classified information in exactly the way the law prohibits in his garage or in his private office. Now, the Biden Justice Department is prosecuting Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Obama Justice Department refused to prosecute Hillary Clinton in the middle of an election for doing the same. Almost certainly the Biden Justice Department will protect Joe Biden and refuse to prosecute him as well, claiming he lacked the necessary intent. There definitely are liberals who are desperate to put President Trump in prison. These charges, the one in Manhattan or the one just brought about this week, will do that, because I think the real goal of the establishment writ large is not to put President Trump in prison. They would love to see that. The real goal is to prevent him from running in 2024, including by telling him, we have the power to convict you. You have a Manhattan jury. You definitely took these documents. We have you on tape saying that you were aware the documents were still classified when you were talking to the people to whom you were showing them, which technically is a law a grand jury will find that we can put you in prison, unless you agree that you won't run for president in 2024, and if you agree you won't run for president 2024, we will give you the same kind of slap on the wrist that we gave to David Petraean, and Sandy Berger and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden who weren't prosecuted at all. Stay tuned for part three in this series. Quid pro quote.